0: Soil is a vital living ecosystem that supports plants, animals, and humans. It's teeming with billions of bacteria, fungi, and other microbes that are the foundation of a complex ecosystem. Viewing soil this way reflects a fundamental shift in the way we care for it. Welcome to the Soil Health Podcast from Minokin Farm.
1: Hi, my name is Jay Fear, and I'm Soil Health Specialist uh, with NRCS USDA right here in Bismarck, North Dakota. And with us today we have uh, Mr. Greg Judy from Missouri and we have the opportunity to visit with him and ask him a few questions. And so we're just going to um, uh, start with that. Um, Greg, my understanding is you're from Clark, Missouri and tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, Jay. we, uh, my wife and
2: I, Jan, uh, we ranch in central Missouri. So we're located uh, 20 miles north of Columbia, which is just about dead center of the state. And uh, so we are a grazing operation. We graze uh, cattle and sheep, and we do some woods pigs and also pastured chickens. And uh, we're now getting into some silver pasture, which has uh, basically now we're doing shiitake mushrooms as a result of that. So our farm consists of 1,620 acres. We own four of those farms and we lease 12. And what's really got us kind of going you know, years ago, we just started leasing instead of trying to own all the land. And
1: it's been good for us. I see you have uh, a fair bit of animal diversity on the farms. Um, maybe you want to share with us a little bit um, uh, on, on what type uh, management you have on the farm regarding the different animal groups, and uh, maybe share a little of that information with yeah, us. Yeah,
2: um, we're all about letting the animals work for us. Uh, you know, we unleash land, which is primarily makes up most of our farms, because we don't have a lot of equipment, we use the livestock to fertilize, mow the ground, um, you know, trample litter to get the armor on the soil. So we're trying to build biology every day that we graze, whether it's with the sheep or the cattle, even the pigs. You know, stirring the, the leaf litter in some of our woodslands, um, and the chickens. And then, of course, they're coming behind the cattle and scratching the manure paths and breaking that parasite cycle of the flies. Um, but we're in a grass-fed operation. We don't feed any grain to any of the ruminants. And so, as long as we can. Basically, we call ourselves, we're in the solar energy business. We're trying to grow as much leaf structure as we can and capture that through sunlight, through the cow or the sheep. And that's where, you know, That's our unfair advantage is we're not having to plant anything. We're all perennial. We have all perennial pastures, mainly cool season grasses, and then we have the warm season grasses coming in, in the summertime. Uh, we are in a fescue belt. Uh, it's the Kentucky 31 fescue. Well, you have found with fescue, you've got to keep diversity in fescue. And by doing that, you can use your animals to help you, you know, by the way you graze them around your property just by adjusting your stock and density, time, how long were they there, and why were they
1: there? So then, Greg, how intensive would your uh, grazing with the uh, the beef uh, beef cattle be in terms of um, you know, our number of pastures, uh, do, do you move once a week, do you move um, every two weeks, or how frequently do you move, and what kind of densities are you looking at using on your well, operation?
2: The, the frequency of moves is uh, the very minimum. We never, we never go less than two moves per day. We're always moving the animals, and the animals get used to it. They do better. We found out if we can give our animals a clean bite of, a clean bite of grass each day, uh, we don't have to worm our animals anymore. We don't use any ibometrins. Um We don't use any back rubs. The animals are healthy. As long as the animals have a chance to be on clean ground all the time, that's where they prefer to be. Um, so we're always putting up temporary fencing in front of them, and we're taking it down behind them as they move forward. Um, we have fairly large paddocks, but we subdivide them with this temporary fencing. Our stock and density, how tight do we have them in there? That all depends. Like in the springtime when the grasses are growing fast, we've got to get around 16 farms in 30 days. That's kind of what we shoot for. That's assuming we get some spring rain. Now, that gets us into the end of May, we're in June, it's getting hotter, The, the rain's not as frequent, our grasses may slow down a little bit. Well now, instead of going around all the 16 farms in 30 days, we may be 50 days. And then you get into July, August, we don't get any rain. Well, we can go as long as 100 days. But with the stocking density, we range, we have what we call exclusion zones. And let me explain an exclusion zone. We take the whole herd and we'll lock them in. Let's say we have a, a, a problem with a nuisance plant, and that plant might be Cerisea lespidiza, it's an invasive. We'll put the whole herd in there at a million pounds, a million pound stocking density. But they're only in there for five minutes then they're moved into another strip. We may do that for a couple hours. You never leave animals stocked at that kind of stocking density longer than five or ten minutes. There's not enough feed in there. But you're using that animal as a tool to beat up the land, defecate, and then leave.
1: And you will see a change in that land. So, Greg, from the time that you started operating these farms that you're on today, from the time you started until... Now, have you seen some changes in soils or infiltration rates or how the soil appears? Uh, Tell us a little bit.
2: Yes, when we started, Jay, a lot of these farms, the reason we got them is because nobody else wanted them. They they were soil bankrupt. In our area, it's a real popular practice for a landowner that maybe he's an absentee landowner. Somebody will come in and ask him if he can bail the hay off that. Well, well, yeah, it looks pretty. So they go in and they able the hay off, and they keep doing that year after year after year after year without putting any fertilizer, nothing back on it. Well, within about three to five years in my area, you've got broom sedge. And broom sedge is an indicator plant that tells you your, your farm is bankrupt. There's nothing left. Nothing will grow but broom sedge, and cattle will not eat broom sedge. So you basically ruined the farm. That's what we inherited. In other words, the farms that we've got, we've taken broom sedge-ridden fields and turned them into grazing havens by tramping some of this broom sedge on the ground, but also by winter feeding hay on them, okay? Giving them a long recovery period between grazings, increasing the stock and density, getting more manure, more urine. It's, It's unbelievable. When you start giving plants and land rest, I can't overemphasize rest, you can't come back until the plant's fully regrown.
1: So, so what you're observing is when you uh, applied this management for a number of years um, that, that 30, 60, 100-day window where you may be hot and dry, have you seen it more resilient or oh, have you my seen a change? Goodness.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're getting more armor on the ground now and we, we, focus, we focus on leaving as much residual as we possibly can with each grazing pass. So we don't want to. We don't even take half the plant. A lot of people they use the rule, the rule of thumb, take half, leave half. Uh uh-uh, uh, not us. We're taking a third and leaving two thirds. What we have found is the longer the piece of plant we can leave behind, we have a larger solar collector there to collect more sunlight. And if you watch animals and you turn them into a paddock, they will always graze the tips of the plants first. That's the first thing they do. But if you leave them there another day, absolutely they'll go back and get the next bite. Well, you just remove more of your solar collectors. All you've done, and the animal performance goes down. Your regrowth—it's going to take longer for the plants to come back.
1: So, with the uh, the beef cattle and the hair sheep and the pastured pigs and the laying hens, there's there's got to be a fair bit of marketing to, to make this work. So, yep. how does how does Greg, Judy, make this marketing work.
2: Well, the marketing on the, on the pasture chickens and the pig, the layers and the pigs, we have another uh, farmer and his wife, uh, Bobby and Alex, it's called Blind Star Farm. And they're running the pigs and the chickens on our properties. And so they take care of that. That's their market. But we're getting the benefit of the manure right. and the disturbance which I really like. I like the chickens because we're getting a lot. I mean, chickens, it's just unbelievable what they can do to a pasture, just with the manure. And they're very busy. They're busy little critters. They're always scratching. And that scratching is adding more diversity into our pasture. We're starting to see more diversity of different forbs and grasses. You can see right where that chicken coop goes. It's just green and lush. (laughs) I mean, it's good stuff. Uh, On the marketing, um, we work at it. You know, We've got a website. I'm very active on the website. I do recommend, you know, people don't know what you have out there. You've got to get your shingle hung out. And so we've got several markets. Uh, I'll go over them real quick. One is, of course, grass fed beef. Right. And that's sold in several different ways. We sell quarters, halves, and holes. Mm-hmm. Um, we sell live steers, live finished steers to other seed stock producers that can't raise enough grass finished beef steers themselves. So they'll come in and buy a trailer load. I like that market because I can back up to his trailer and he can unload 12 steers out of my trailer and he just writes me a check for 12 steers I don't have to worry about selling those right so that is another market the market that's really taken off in the last probably five years four to five years is our seed stock market and we do run a breed it's called South Pole it's a four-way cross it's Red Angus Hereford Sinopole and Barzona. very heat resistant very slick-hided, excellent mothers. They do extremely well on Kentucky 31 fescue. Well, because there's so much of our land is covered with Kentucky 31, it's hard to find cattle that can eat fescue and give you a calf every year. We have found the right size animal. We kind of we started with bigger cows and now we've got those animals down. Instead of having 12 to 1400 pound cows, our cows today will average probably around 950, between 900 and 1,000 pounds. Right. That's the animal, Jay, that you can make some money. Yeah. That's your advantage That's a That's a huge advantage. Yeah. And so our seed stock business, I had an old guy tell me years ago, he said, Greg, if you you get a goal, what you want to raise, and you stay focused on the small, efficient cows, they're as rare as hen's teeth. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. So, I mean, it's just crazy the seed stock. It's, so um,
0: on
1: the South Pole. Uh, t- tell us the color of that. Animal. They're red. They're red hided red.
2: absolutely, and that's a big deal. In Missouri, when it's hot and humid, you don't want a black hided animal. There's no way they they can't take the heat. And if you've got a black hided animal, you've got a group of trees. That's where they'll be. The redmonds will be out grazing. They're so. Yeah, it's a no brainer.
1: So, uh, today's uh, program uh, where you spoke at today. Uh, here in Bismarck, and uh, some of your slides uh, showed uh, some red red beef cattle, and their body condition score appeared really good. So, can you share us a little information on keep maintaining a a body condition score with yep. basically grazing uh, most of the year, uh, that or feeding on hayland for the supplement?
2: The of- uh, the beautiful thing about having the smaller frame cattle is we've got big gut. We've got a big gut right. capacity on our cows and our bulls. Um, we, don't have to- we don't have a lot of leg. I've learned to hate leg. If I look at a cow and I can see a lot of leg under, I don't want anything to do with that cow. All she's gonna do is cost me money. She's probably not gonna breed back on grass without feeding her breeder cubes or whatever.
1: The larger the frame, the more inefficient they are. <laughs> it's just that plain and simple. When we've seen that data, uh, you can look at a fair bit of university data uh, in relation to the larger framed cow and the um, total intake versus the relative intake. Yeah. And so you start looking at that, uh, that smaller framed cow is a higher percent intake of it in comparison to its total, total body weight. She'll always wean a higher percentage of her body weight right. than a 1,500 pound cow will, a thousand pound cow. Wheel. And and I can see where that gives you um, you know it's a a small daily advantage, but you get it every day of the year. Yes. And and then it becomes uh, significant. Here's a big, here's a really big one. For every hundred pounds
2: of weight, and I didn't say anything about this today. You can't remember everything in your talk, but for every 100 pounds of weight that you go over 1,000 pounds, you lose 2% fertility. Okay. So from 1,000 pounds to 1,500, you're losing 10% fertility across your whole herd. If they're all 1,500 pounders, why would you want to do that?
1: <laughs> okay, very good, Greg. Um, also want to visit with you a little bit about, um, you mentioned uh, feeding hay uh, on uh, on, the hayland, or on the pasture land, or yeah. We the, don't
2: put up any hay. We okay. we 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 buy our hay every year. Uh, okay. You
1: cannot afford to bale hay on your farm.
2: Can't do it. Absolutely, it's the biggest it's the biggest boo boo there is. And there's several reasons. First of all, you can't afford the equipment. the depre, the The depreciation on it, the breakdowns, the parts, the labor. You spend all summer making hay, and then you'll spend all summer feeding it. I'm sorry, all winter feeding it. You buy that hay. You're bringing in nutrients. You're bringing in nutrients. You're, you're, you're bringing in nutrients off the farm. You're putting them on your farm. There's hay contractors. That's all they do is bale hay. Buy it. Don't put it up. And the other thing, Jay, people don't figure out, and they haven't put a pencil to it, when you put up hay on your farm, it's usually designated off, let's say, 30% of your land. It's always the best land on your farm. It's because it's the easiest to get equipment over you're not getting to graze that land. And when you hay land, go out there and look at it two weeks in the summertime. You tell me how many earthworms you see crawling around out there. It looks like a desert, it's baked. And so when you hay your land and you don't get any rain after that, man, you are in trouble. So you took 30% of your farm, you took it out of your grazing system because you can't graze it, it's your precious hay field. And you get in a drought situation, you can't even graze it because there's nothing out there to graze. It just kills you, absolutely kills you.
1: Also, uh, uh, Greg, something I wanted to visit with you about, um, actually for quite some time, and and that is in terms of how did Greg Judy get started in soil regeneration and uh, the managed grazing and observing uh, biology and observing carbon, what what uh, what kind of took place in your life or upbringing that kind of gave you this appreciation?
2: You know, I was born and raised on a farm my whole life, but I, I didn't know anything about grazing, period. I just, you know, it's grass and you had livestock, you put them out there, they ate it, and when you ran out, you fed hay. And that was my upbringing, and I tried that practice when I started out. I bought the farm, I bought the cattle, when I ran out of gra- grass, I fed hay and I didn't make any money, zero. Matter of fact, I lost some money. I'm like, well, this wasn't any fun. You work a whole year, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the work, but I didn't enjoy losing money. And there's an old saying in Missouri, it's that you you may have heard this Jay, it's better to do nothing and make nothing than to do something and make nothing. (laughs) Well, it's the truth. And so I was convinced there was a way to make money in grass agriculture. And so I started focusing in on people that better than I was. And there was people around me that were doing rotational grazing. And I got introduced to the Stockman Grass Farmer. That took me into holistic management. Then I met Ian Mitchell Ennis in 2006, high density grazer from South Africa. And he started telling me, Greg, you're not a grass farmer, you're a microbe farmer. And so that put my focus back into the soil. Regenity, building healthy soil, using the animal hooves to, to put the armor on the land. I didn't even know what litter bank was. I'd never even heard the term. Until Ian told me, Greg, there's more there's more animals beneath the soil in healthy soil. There's more animals per acre in weight beneath an acre than there is above it. But you've got to manage it. You've got to feed those animals. You've got to protect them.
1: Well, also, Greg, listening to uh, your presentation today, uh, there was um, there was uh, there was kind of an obvious connect going on in multiple areas of your farm that. That appears like there's uh, some thought given to a wider picture or more of a holism type approach on on management. And is that is that an accurate thought?
2: Or? Absolutely. You know, we're always looking at you know harvesting solar energy, and that that might be through a beef or it might be through a lamb or a pig or whatever. But it also could be through wildlife. Uh, we we sell hunts on our farm, and people say well, that's not right. You shouldn't be selling wildlife. We don't. We sell a chance to shoot a deer. We don't sell the deer. And so Ian does that in Africa. He says, Greg, you're harvesting solar energy. Well that brings us into agritourism. So now we have our own Airbnb. Folks, you gotta get the customers out onto your farm. Uh, How are you gonna sell them? How are they gonna know about you if you don't hang your shingle out and have a place for them to come out?
1: So would it be uh, accurate to say that uh, there's been a fair bit of vertical integration, vertical stacking uh, of of enterprises that somewhat feed off of each other.
2: I am extremely convinced, uh, Jay, that you need to have a mothership. You have got to have a focus on what it is that really makes your farm tick. What is it that pays the bills? Define what that is. And it could be sheep, it could be cattle, it could be pigs, whatever. But whatever that mothership is, get that down really well, and that's what we've done. We've focused on that. We've got our fencing. We've got our water, we, our genetics. We've worked on that. We're really cranking along with that. Well, then we added the sheep. Well, I don't run my cattle, and by God, I wasn't going to run the sheep. People say, you can't do that. They'll die. I'm like, well, some of them will, but the ones that don't will be the good ones, and that's, so that's what we've done. So now we've got a really good, outstanding market for parasite resistant. Seed stock sheep. That is where the money's at,
1: is selling parasite resistant sheep. So you should focus on that. Uh, also, Greg, I think, um, you know, when we look at the whole picture, and um, uh, at one time, my understanding is that you were working off the farm as well. Uh, supplementing income, one one operation maybe supplementing the other a bit. And uh, are, you, are you still working off the farm, or how, how does that turned out for you? It's turned out really well, um, but
2: it was very tough, Jay. Um, I'm not going to sit here and candy coat it. I went through a very tough period in my life um, in 1999. It actually started in 1996, the big D, and not talking Dallas. It was a divorce, and um, it lasted six years. and During that time, my farm was almost history. But the only thing that got me out of it was I had an old guy tell me. He said, Greg, if you'll stay focused on that green blade of grass out there and managing animals to eat that, he said, you'll come out. And so I started doing that. I started learning more about grazing. Well, then the other big deal was another article came out and I read it and it said, your sole purpose in life should not be to own the land, but to control the land. And that's when I got into leasing. And I'm like, my gosh, this is unbelievable. Why isn't anybody else leasing this land? And long story short, I just kept going after more farms and more farms. And today we have 16 of them. And they're all within five miles. And so I, I got my numbers up. That allowed me to get my numbers up by running more cattle on other people's land. And we actually got paid. We, we custom grazed. We didn't own any cattle. So we got paid so much a month per cow to run other people's cattle. Well, once we did that for seven years, we built up a nice nest egg. We started buying our own cows, and today uh, we're debt free. We own all of our livestock. We no longer custom graze, and you know we've we've built a really nice grass genetic herd up. But it all started by thinking differently. You you can't do what your neighbors are doing and expect to be different. I mean, people around us think we're nuts some of the things we do. I like that, I want people to talk about me. If they stop talking about me, I get a little bit spooked because I feel like I'm
1: falling back into a groove. Well, and I think it's allowed allowed you to tell your story. Yes, absolutely. And, and tell you the environment that these animals are in. Yes. And, and how they're managed and how, how their lives are, really. Yep. And I think, I think in today's world, that uh, is of great interest uh, to the potential market Yep. And, and I think it speaks really speaks well of your land management, also. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you can walk, you've got to be able to walk the talk. I mean, it, you, know, you come to my farm and in the growing season, you see what's happening out there, and you're just like, oh my God, those are beautiful cattle. How did you do that? It took extreme calling, it took working on the soil. I'm not going to take all the credit for it. The cattle did a lot of the work, but it was me being the manager over a period of time that changed these farms farms around. And so we have, we've got landowners, numerous landowners, and they're just like, Greg, you keep doing what you're doing, we never wanna sell this farm. Jay, we've got one farm, I had a 10-year lease on it, and the guy came back in that fall, he ripped my lease up. He ripped it up after I had his farm for one year. He said, Greg, your farm, this lease isn't any good, we're we're just, it's no good, the 10-year lease. And he said, "My wife and I talked it over. We're going to give you a lifetime lease." And that's quite an endorsement. That was a huge endorsement. And he ripped my check up, and and he handed me back my money in cash for the the. I mean, and then he gave me a cured turkey. And ever since then, it's been that same way. Yeah. He cannot express how much gratitude him and his wife have for the way we treat his farm. So yeah, I mean, a lifetime lease. That's.
1: That's huge. Yeah, and and it speaks well to the the stewardship of, and exactly. Of land because you you obviously address that and that obviously spoke volumes to the it to did the landowners. It
2: so. did, and you know I tell people you can't use the Columbus method if you're in the leasing business. You you can't turn your cows out in the spring and
1: discover them in the fall. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> it doesn't work very well. <laughs> Greg, uh, we're gonna bring the interview to a close here. Any, any last uh, thoughts you'd like to share with us or last comments? Yeah, um,
2: I think for people listening to this, you know, if you wanna get started in the, in the grazing enterprises, I think you ought to go and learn from somebody that's better than you are, uh, develop a passion for it. If you don't have that, you need to have a really strong passion for and have a goal. Write down your goals. And as you finish those goals, check them off and always keep another list of goals that you haven't succeeded in yet. And I think that's that's, that's key, is if you have a goal and you have a desire to do something, go learn from somebody really well and then start small. Don't go out there and jump in a huge amount of debt at the very start. Work your way in slowly. It's nice to have a little home base that you can start your grazing operation from, but from there, look for areas away from large cities. more rural and you can get some of this land and and get your feet in there and once you get that first lease treat it like you own it by golly someday you might
1: very good Greg we really appreciate uh, the opportunity to sit down with you today and and uh, do a, a bit of an interview I think the theme for the workshop today which was healing the land and ourselves with livestock was a perfect fit uh for greg judy and, yes and i think that, i think it was uh, i think that the two of you were meant for each other obviously and uh you know based on all the comments we had today at break etc a uh, lot of uh, buzz amongst the uh, participating people today i think your message was uh, well received and i think we're going to see impacts in the future, this growing season and the next, etc., of people that are applying some of the principles you talked about today.
2: Yeah, well, I, I agree. That's just great news. And you know, it was a pleasure, Jay,
1: coming up here in North Dakota and spending time with you all and sharing some of the things we do. Well, we, we've enjoyed hosting you. So with that, um, I'm Jay Fear, uh Soil Health Specialist, NRCS USDA, uh, with Greg Judy today. And we thank you very much.
0: The Soil Health Podcast is a production of the Monokin Farm. Monokin Farm exists to foster natural resource education and systems approach conservation. This 150-acre demonstration farm, located just east of Bismarck, North Dakota, was established in 2009 and draws people from all over the world. The farm is owned and operated by Burley County Soil Conservation District, which has an office in Bismarck, North Dakota. Additional financial and technical support is provided by the North Dakota Department of Health, Water Quality Division, Natural Resources Conservation Service, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture.